It was great to see you this morning. We're kicking off a, a brand new service, and of course, it's Baptism Sunday, so we're excited about that. Had a great weekend last week. Last Sunday, 177 men showed up and signed up for our Fight Club. We're excited about that. And then, as you heard earlier in our service, as things lead up to Easter, Easter's only like three weeks, right? Three weeks from today. So, man, that's coming fast. And uh, do I have that right? I think I got that right. Yeah. And, um, and we have yard signs, uh, just as Michael was talking about. It's just a way to, uh, this is the time of year that people start thinking, even people who normally don't go to church sometimes start thinking about church and where they might go. And uh, putting those yard signs up would just be a way to remind them, especially if they know where you live, they might know who you are. It's like an invitation. So grab one of those, and uh, we appreciate that. And of course, we're excited this morning because we're doing uh, Believer's Baptism, and uh, we're excited about that. And I know some of you, and by the way, that's for those, because it's, uh, if some of you haven't already signed up for that, we will, we will be asking people to, if they, even if they haven't signed up, that you could come and be baptized. If you're 11 and o- older, we would like to take more time if you're younger than that. But if you're 11 and older, you can respond. And I know what, what you guys are saying, you're, you're thinking, well, I'm not prepared for that. Uh, I'm not ready. I didn't bring my stuff. Well, that is why we prepared something for you, the handy-dandy baptism kit right here. And so uh, you'll receive one of these. Uh, If you decide to get baptized today, even though you weren't uh, maybe uh, planning on it, uh, and in here is a towel and some shorts, and you'll get a t-shirt and comb, and you know, I saw hair dryers and everything else. Uh, in, in the back, and so we're all ready for you. We have little changing rooms and stuff, so you have privacy. All that is ready for you, just in case uh, we want to make it easy for you to obey God on believers' baptism. So, so keep that keep that in mind. And uh, like I say, we have plenty of these, uh, and they're there for you. So, we're going to dive into this new series, Public Enemy, and what we're focusing on is how. The people saw Jesus, it shifted during his ministry, and especially the leaders, they saw Jesus as somebody outside the law. They saw him as an enemy rather than a savior. But before all that started, it really, that was how they saw John the Baptist, and it was John the Baptist that introduced Jesus, and and with with Jesus, he baptized Jesus, and with that, Jesus started his his public ministry. And so I want us to, to look at that, and, uh, and we're going to start with, and what I want us to see is, first of all, Jesus baptized. He was our example. And then I want to fast forward to, after his death, burial, and resurrection, then he challenged his, uh, his apostles to go to all the world, all of his followers, and encourage them to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so I want to see, first of all, Jesus' baptism, then the first church, the first followers of Jesus, how they got baptized, and then that's going to bring, hey, what about us? So you ready? Okay, all right. So you're, you're, you're doing pretty well for missing an hour's sleep, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that one. Good job. So I want to start in John chapter 1, but before I get there, when we're talking about Jesus' baptism... I want to point out something that's easy for us to miss. Basically, what's going on, John's doing a baptism. This is before even the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is alive. He just hasn't started his public ministry yet. And as we look at that, 
how the Jewish people saw John's baptism. As a matter of fact, what's happening there is, is with the Jewish mindset, Jewish people were never baptized. They were never dunked into water. That was actually reserved for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who were considered unclean because they were Gentiles. They were not following all the Jewish ceremonial laws, all kind of the weird stuff in the Old Testament. They weren't doing all that stuff. Because of that, to Jewish people, they were considered unclean. And when they became followers of the Jewish God or proselytes, then they would undergo this physical baptism underwater as a symbol that they now had become clean. It was a symbol of cleansing, and then they would start following God. So that was kind of normal at the time of John. But John is doing something completely different. And this is what makes John public enemy. John is baptizing Jewish people. And as he's doing that, that causes quite a stir. And as a matter of fact, the religious leaders, they send an investigative team out to John by the Jordan to ask him why he's doing that. Now, you have to understand, in addition to what John's doing here, the other thing that's happening in the, at this time in the first century is that people have a lot of messianic expectations. They know the Messiah is coming. A lot of people, from their understanding of the Old Testament, thinks it's going to happen very soon. And so that's stirring up a lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, Malachi 4.5 starts this way, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And Elijah was, was a different kind of a guy. And now you have John, who's like a wilderness guy, he's dressed in animal skins, he's eating wild honey, and this guys he's not a city guy, and this is kind of different and to some people, that's how they pictured Elijah, and so it's causing this controversy. The religious leaders in Jerusalem send out a team to check out John and see what he's up to, and that's exactly what's going on. That brings us to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. You Ready? John chapter 1. All right, let's go. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent, him, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And Christ means Messiah. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, when they had been sent, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and these guys are, are sticklers on the law. They had been sent from the Pharisees, in verse 25, they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we're going to get back to that phrase because that's key in just a moment. So the first thing I want you to see is John's baptism, what that said to Jewish people. Because what John was saying to the Jewish people were, hey, we all need cleansing. Not just those dirty Gentiles who haven't been following the law. We actually all need cleansing. But now what I want us to see is what John's baptism, how John saw himself in all that. Because these, this investigative team comes, they confront John because he's doing something so unusual, baptizing Jewish people. And then they say, okay, so what's up? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he says, no. Are, are, you, the, the, are you Elijah? He says, no. Because Elijah was supposed to come before the pre- predecessor, the forerunner. And then he says, are you the prophet? No. And so John denies all this. By the way, trick question, was John correct in his answers? Actually, no. He wasn't correct. And how do we know that? By the way, some people would say, well, John's just saying no. He kind of knows he is, but he's saying no. I'm not actually the physical Elijah. I don't think that's what John's saying. I think John's just saying, no, that's, that's not me. And so they say, well, then who are you? He says, a voice. How we know John isn't correct, and this is really intriguing, and you got to understand, in the Bible, the Bible's all true, but narrative, is, narrative in the Bible is just recording what happened, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And so we get to this, very intriguing. How we know that is from Matthew chapter 11. And some of you will remember this story. In Matthew chapter 11, this is years later, John, a few years later, John is in prison. He's public enemy, right? He's about to be beheaded. That just hasn't happened yet. And he's discouraged. He's bummed out. And things really didn't happen the way he thought they would happen. And so some, some people are visiting him in prison, some of his followers, and he says, go talk to Jesus. Go get this one more time. I got to hear it one more time. You're the one, right? Because this is not playing out with me in prison the way I thought it should play out. And so in Matthew chapter 11, these people go to Jesus and they say, what's the deal? John wants to know. And then Jesus says, oh, he needs reassurance. I'm the Messiah. Well, just tell him this, the blind see. Just tell him everything, all these miracles that are happening. And so they leave to go report back to John. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. But after they leave, then Jesus starts talking about John. Remember that? You could just nod if you're following me. Jesus starts talking about John. I see no nods over here. Jesus starts talking about John. And then he basically says, Is John the forerunner? Yes. Is John a prophet? Yes, he is, more than a prophet. Is John Elijah? Jesus says, yes, he is. And then Jesus says, says, a matter of fact, there has been no one born of woman who is greater than John the Baptist. Remember that part? He's saying, hey, not John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is the prophet. He is Elijah. Jesus says that. And so we have to reconcile with this. What is John thinking? He says, no, no, no. Jesus says, not, he's not the Messiah, but Jesus says, yes, yes, he is Elijah. He is the prophet. He is the forerunner. 
And what we realize is John has a diminished view of himself. John's not understanding the significance that Jesus is placing on his life. And so typically in our day, when people have a diminished view of self, we say, well, you know what the problem is? You have a low self-esteem. And typically when people have low self-esteem, that means they're not bold, they're not confident, you know, they have issues. Well, that does not describe John, right? He, he's, he's anything but not bold. I mean, he's bold. And so basically you got two possibilities. When people have a diminished view of themselves, they're, they're way better than they think they are. That's usually because of two reasons. One is that they're so self-absorbed and they're so self-focused that they can't get beyond all the little things that they've done wrong and that just trips them up. The other view is that they just don't think of themselves at all. And I think this is John. He's not self-absorbed. He's like, uh, he hasn't even really thought about his role. All he knows is the Messiah is coming. I'm not worthy to untie his shoe. And he's here and he's among you and he's going to be revealed. And so he's just this voice proclaiming the coming of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, that's John. And we're normally people with a diminished view of themselves you know, they, they have trouble functioning or they can't be confident, bold, and courageous. John's just the opposite of that. He has a diminished view of himself, but he is confident and courageous and bold. Think about it. He's baptizing Jewish people. That's against everything that the leaders in Jerusalem want him to be doing. To him, to them, it's like he's a lawbreaker. He confronts Herod for Herod's personal sin publicly, which is what ends up putting him in prison and eventually beheaded. I mean, if John is anything, he's bold, right? He's courageous. So that's, what, that's, what's, that's John's baptism. That's what happens when John is baptizing. Now, he says he's a voice, and we understand that here... We're reminded again, because we have these examples in Scripture, on how Christ followers, they can have this unique combination of humility and boldness, of humility and courage. John was that. Humble, not even thinking about his own significance, but bold and courageous. And then there's that last phrase that I wanted Behold the Lamb. Remember, all the Jewish people, they trace their origins. Of course, that goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but after that, as a nation, they really trace their origins back to Egypt when they were in slavery, right? And then God delivered them as a nation out of Egypt. Before Egypt, they were just a family. Out of Egypt, they're a nation, and they're all aware of that. And what sprung them out? Well, God did. And what did he use? The plagues, right? The ten plagues. We've saw, seen the movie. Again, nodding is okay. You've seen the movie. You know what I'm talking about, the ten plagues. And then the last plague was the worst plague, right? The last plague was the death of all the firstborn. And especially in that society... In ancient times, it was the firstborn that got the double inheritance. It was the firstborn that led the family. It was the firstborn that everybody turned to 
as the new leader of the family. It meant everything to them family-wise, and traditional cultures are much more tied in family. And this is the death of the firstborn. And then remember, what did God say? Moses, saying what God instructed him to say, is telling the people, hey, this angel is going to come through and kill everybody because of our sin. The death of the firstborn dies. But for you, Jewish people, what you do is what? Kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts, and then this avenging angel will pass over you, and that's the beginning of the Passover, right? What the Jewish people still celebrate today. And so that's happening, and those people are very aware. But if you think about that, there's something odd about that. If we're guilty of sin, which we are, all of us are, and so were they, and now God is going to punish Israel's enemies, but he realizes that Israel is also sinful, so he makes this way. So if justice demands that the guilty pay, then does it make sense that just killing a lamb takes care of everything? Well, kind of. I mean, it reminds us the seriousness of sin, but on the other, on the other side, it seems if, if my sin is worthy of my death, then I can get away with that just by killing a lamb? It doesn't seem to balance. You know what I'm saying? And John is figuring this out. So John is saying, that's why it's so significant. So when he sees Jesus the next day, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. It's like he got it. He's figured it out. And it might be that Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament is helping him figure that out, where he says this, the Messiah is going to come, suffering servant and all this stuff. And so John, the light bulb goes on, he gets it, and he says, before anybody understood this, even during Christ's public ministry, the disciples weren't fully getting this. He says, behold... The Lamb of God. John, and behold, even that word in the Greek, it's like, I got it. Oh, I understand. Whoa, revelation. Hey, check this out. Behold, he gets it. God is going to allow his firstborn son to be killed for our sins. That's it. The Lamb was just temporary. God's giving his firstborn for us to redeem us, to pay for our sin. And John is the very first person that figures this out. This is the crux of all human history. This is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And John gets it. And remember the other intriguing thing that Jesus said back in Matthew 11? He said, of, of people born of women, there's not one greater than John the Baptist. But then he said something else, you remember? He said, but uh, regarding those in the kingdom, even the least in the kingdom is greater than he. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, as people come to Christ, even the least of those are going to be greater than John, who, and John is greater than anybody born before him. Why? By the way, he's talking about us. And Why? Do we have this opportunity to be greater than John? Because what John was the first human person to kind of figure out what was going on with Jesus 
We all now have that information, right? Because of the ministry of Jesus that follows this event for three years and his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Stuff that the disciples were struggling with. We all, we all know that. Even non-Christians get that now. Oh yeah, Christians think that Jesus, he's the Lamb of God. He's the one sacrificed for their sin. That's what's happening at this crucial point in history, and now we could all understand that truth. So that's what's going on in John's baptism. Then fast forward after Jesus' three years of ministry, then his death, which will be, you know, this is all coming up. We'll be celebrating his resurrection soon. His death, his re- resurrection, and between his resurrection and then his ascension into heaven, that happened about a month later, in that intervening time, Jesus is around teaching people, and a whole bunch of people, hundreds of people in Jerusalem see him, and then he's teaching them what? He's teaching his fathers, hey, go out among all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commissions them to go baptize, and then he ascends up to heaven, and he tells his, he tells his followers, wait for the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost. So they wait, and he says, wait in Jerusalem. And then on Pentecost, as they're waiting, and they're hiding out. Remember, they're enemies. They're, they're public enemies. They're, they killed Jesus, and it's not great to be his follower right now as far as the law is concerned. And then all of a sudden, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they're in the room gathered, and the Holy Spirit kind of descends like fire, and each little tongue of fire lands on them. And then they bust out of that room, and this is at a time of Pentecost where Jewish people from all over the world have now gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate this event. So Jerusalem is busting at the seams. All these people from all different, all these Jewish people from different parts of the world and proselytes from different parts of the world, they're here in Jerusalem. They all speak different languages. When the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples bust out of their hiding and they start preaching. And the people who are gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world start understanding what the disciples are saying in their own language, even their own dialect of their own language, Scripture says. And so they get the message. And then Peter gets up, and he preaches his first sermon. And it's to these, this huge mixed crowd busting the seams in Jerusalem. And that brings us now to Acts chapter 2, 37. Now, during his sermon, he basically says, look, you guys. Jesus was the Christ, meaning Jesus was the Messiah. And you, you messed up. You crucified the Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. All these prophecies all pointed to Jesus. And as he weaves through their history and who Jesus is, he's basically causing them to think. He's actually getting them to think through the evidence And by the way, he's doing this with a crowd where there are hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Christ. So it's not like he even has to prove that. The evidence is there, he's saying. And then at the end of his sermon, here's what he says in verse 37. Acts 2, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, when they heard his sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent 
And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved. That's where we get that term, right? You're saved. Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So Peter confronts the crowd Everybody's hearing in their own language, and while Peter is confronting them and getting them to think through the events of the last few months, the Spirit is convicting the hearts. And then the people, the crowd, they are pierced to the heart. And by the way, and that's, that's conviction of the Holy Spirit, they are pierced to the heart, and that is the difference between religion and biblical Christianity, being pierced to the heart by the Holy Spirit, where you realize, I've been wrong, I have done wrong according to God, I have offended Him by my life. And they ask, what should we do? They know they're guilty, and what they're asking for is they're saying, how can we make this right? We're guilty, how can we be forgiven, and he answers, repent. Now, repentance, and sometimes you hear this slightly differently. I want to clear that up. Repentance, the Greek word means a change of mind, but the Hebrew idea of repentance in the Hebrew language was that you change your direction to follow God. So sometimes we kind of sum it up to say, well, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. But, and, and his crowd are Hebrew people, Jewish people. And what they mainly hear in repentance is that we turn our lives to follow God. We turn our lives to this new way. We, we understand the evidence, and it changes our mind about God. That happened. But the word repent to that, even though that happened during that sermon, because Peter was forcing them to think through it, they were actually turning their lives to follow God. That's how they saw repentance. And it's the starting point for forgiveness. And then, so repentance is a starting point for forgiveness, but right on the heels of repentance, by definition, really is faith that we believe Jesus is who he said he is, and we've understood that we've done wrong. And we're, it's like saying, I understand now, I'm guilty and I'm sorry. That's repentance. And then Peter's telling them that they need to follow up by getting baptized. And a whole bunch of people get baptized. 3,000 people. I think the biggest baptism, once a year we go out to White Star Park. We've been doing this for over a decade, I think. And out there, you know, sometimes we'll have around 100 people getting baptized. Often it's in the 90s. And, uh, and that's a lot of baptism. It takes a while, right? Well, 3,000 people. Have you ever kind of thought about that and broke down the logistics of that? You know, pastor, you know, we do that. But anyway, 3,000 people, if you think about that. Well, how long does it take to baptize? Well, so let's just say 
Well, in order to make sure that they're not thinking that dunking underwater is going to save them, that really this is just a public testimony of something that they've repented and turned toward Christ, and so it's going to have to be a little bit of a conversation, and then to dunk them underwater, let's say two minutes per person. Fair enough? So two minutes per person, and then if it took two minutes per person, then we're realizing that, okay, well, there's there's 3,000, so that's 6,000 minutes which is 10, what is, that's 100 hours, right? So 6,000 minutes. Who's good at math? I already worked this out. That's 100, that's 100 hours. 100 hours of baptizing. Well, let's say all 11 apostles were baptizing people. If they were doing it one at a time, and they might not have done it one at a time, they might, might have had like three different places where they're doing it or something. But if they were doing it one at a time, that's nine hours of baptizing. Nine hours of hearing people confess Christ and dunking them underwater. And so this is like an all-day event. And it's right in the middle. It's in public. It's in Jerusalem. And so all day long, people are in Jerusalem that didn't go to the sermon or, or maybe didn't respond. You know, and, they're doing, and all of a sudden, people are walking along with their friends, and they're drenched. You know, people are standing there in Jerusalem kind of going, what, what happened to you? Why are you all wet? And they're doing this in this public. And so why? Why do that? Why take the time that it would take to do that? Well, because baptism is a public symbol of something that's happened in our heart. It's kind of like a wedding band. How many of you wear a, a wedding band? You know, what's that say when you wear a wedding band? You know, it says like, hey, I belong to somebody. Well, that's what baptism is. Baptism is saying that I belong to somebody. And his name is Jesus. It's how we publicly identify with Christ. So that's what was happening there. And so then the question is, where, what about us? Where are we at? I'd like you to grab your bulletins. And you'll notice there's a spot on there that has four boxes. And so, it's right under We Care and Merge Camp. If you grab this, and I, want, I just want to walk through this with you. And I want you to take a pen and check these boxes if they're true of you, okay? So, first box, as we're looking back what Peter was talking to them about, the first box says conviction. That's the pierce to the heart part, Conviction. And so the question is, have you come to the realization that you've done wrong? God says you've done wrong, which God says is called sin. And that you stand guilty before God. Have you come to that point in your life? And again, if we stand guilty before God and we've sinned against God, there's that whole justice thing that says, you know, for there to be justice, real justice, wrongdoing has to be punished. And so you realize that you deserve punishment. So are you there yet? And so if you've done that, if you've, if you've felt conviction like that, if you've been pierced to the heart, you know that you stand guilty before God because of your sin, then I want you to check that box. All right? Next box. And if you don't know that, then, then don't check that if you've not experienced that. Next is repentance. It says, you believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God and it is your desire to follow him. That's, hey, whoa, Jesus is the Son of God. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. I want to follow. That's repentance. Repentance 
is the correct response to sin. There's a lot of incorrect responses to sin. And that's, hey, it's not my fault, or I'm not that bad, or, you know, I'm, I'm just born this way. Hey, we're all guilty. And repentance is, is starts with just recognizing that fact. And, and so if you've, you believe you've repented, that you get it, you know you're guilty, and you're sorry, and you want to follow, check that box. And then forgiveness. I mean, that's what, they, what, that's what Peter said, for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what they're asking the whole question for. How can we be forgiven? And so is this true of you or not? Check the box. Forgiveness. You have called out to God for forgiveness, asking for forgiveness. Or you're now asking for forgiveness, just understanding this. Just like Peter's crowd started understanding during the sermon and then responded. And you're... Are you calling on him for forgiveness or have you done that based on the truth that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on the cross? He's the only one who didn't have sin. He's the only one qualified to pay for someone else's and he did for us. And and that forgiveness, the the word there in the Greek, it's talking about a financial transaction. It's a financial debtor that forgiveness means clear the debt that you rightfully owe. It's forgiven. It's cleared. As a matter of fact, John, interesting, John 1, 9. Check this out. John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, listen to this, well-known verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and righteous. That's weird. If we confess our sins, what's he doing? He's giving us forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, or he's faithful and just. What we'd expect there is he's faithful and merciful, faithful and loving, but it's not. He's faithful and just or righteous. What's What's going on there? It's the right, just thing for us to be forgiven. Why? Because Christ has paid for our sins, and through faith you get that. So now the just thing is that you're forgiven of your sin. It's more than mercy. It's the justice of God. And then the last here, if you've done those three boxes, if you've checked conviction, repentance, forgiveness, then the next question is this. Have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? And if you already know that you've signed up and you're ready for baptism, I want you right now to just stand up and head out those doors and and start getting ready. If you're in this room, uh, just right now, go ahead and head out there and start getting ready, And uh, which is great. It is so cool to see people who are following in obedience to God, just to honor Him, just to publicly say, hey, I belong to Him. So we're so thankful for these who are coming today. But but if you're here and you've checked the first three boxes, I want to talk about that last check mark. Have you followed in believer's baptism subsequent to your salvation 
So that means if you were baptized as an infant before you did any of this stuff, infant baptism is not even in the Bible. That's not what scriptural baptism is talking about. And some people, they think they understand salvation and they're in a good Bible-believing church. And then they, they, they think they get it and they follow in believer's baptism. And then later in they, their life, they find out, oh, I, I didn't get that. I didn't really understand the cost of forgiveness and what that really means to me. And then you became, actually became a Christian later than that. Well, then you should follow in believer's baptism. It, it just means after you fully understand salvation, after you've been pierced to the heart, conviction, that you've repented and that you've asked for forgiveness, after those things, and God is always faithful to grant that forgiveness if you come to him in faith. Have you been dunked underwater? Because that's what baptism means. And so if you have not done that, if you cannot check the third box, then to, maybe today's the day. There's no